Well, I am thankful that we have been reading these past few weeks through the prophet Habakkuk in our scripture reading. I want to encourage you to study the book of Habakkuk. If someone were to ask me what is my favorite book of the Bible, it's kind of like telling them your favorite child. But I will say that Habakkuk was mightily used of the Lord early in my walk uh, as a Christian. And perhaps one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible is verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be out, or it's to be cut from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And it's interesting how God in His providence often weaves together passages of His Scripture. Those two verses, in a sense, encapsulate not just the chapter we're going to look at today, but this entire section of David's life. It is a time of a downward spiral. It is a time of loss, of pain, of knowing emptiness. And yet we, like David need to rejoice in the Lord. You can look and see that David wrote many psalms in which he went to the Lord and rejoiced in the Lord during this period of time. So I commend that to you. If you do have an interest in Habakkuk, you can go to our website. I have previously preached on that. It's a wonderful prophetic book. But we come this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 13. It is a very lengthy chapter. 39 verses, and in order to, be, uh, to, to preach in the time allotted to me, if I were to read through this entire chapter, I'd use about half of my time. So what I'm going to do is ask the Lord for His blessing and then give you kind of a summary of the chapter. I hope that you have been able to read through it. Um, if you are not getting the emails that I send out on Saturdays before worship to prepare for worship, please let the office know. We'd be glad to send that to you so you can get the passage and read it in advance see the hymns, play the music that goes along with the hymns to be prepared to worship. But let's now go to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, our God, Lord, open up your word to us. For often we come to your word and we either think we know all the answers or we wonder, Lord, what you are trying to tell us. And so we ask that you would, by the power of your Spirit, Speak to us. Mold our hearts. Mold us into the image of our Lord and Savior. Even the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in His precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, chapter 13 is a difficult portion of the Scripture. This is one of the worst stories in the Bible. Some writers wonder why it's here at all. And so I warn you, if you came here this morning for an encouraging word and to be uplifted, you're probably going to be disappointed. In fact, you may be hoping that I say less rather than more. But like everything else in the Bible, this is here for our benefit. This story begins to show the truth of God's judgment on David for his sin. 
2 Samuel 12, verses 10 through 12, are the background for all of this. God's statement of judgment upon David. And this chapter shows us the depths that sin will bring us to. It is a warning for us. A warning that sin is horrible. And that apart from the grace of God, sin will turn everything to ashes. So what I'd like us to see in this chapter this morning is first that this is a horrible story. There is no getting around that. It is a horrible story. If you have read it and are disturbed by it, you should be. But then secondly, we see something worse. We see a horrible reaction by several people to the events of this horrible story. But then thirdly, we'll conclude by seeing what we can learn from this story. What God is teaching us through this story in this text. Well, you may know the story, but let me give you the brief overrun of it. We've seen David and his sin and God challenge him through the prophet Nathan. And now David's children are front and center. We're introduced to Absalom, to Tamar, and to Amnon. And we, we see Amnon come up with a plot stirred on by his cousin. And the two of them make a plot, Amnon and Jonadab, and they make a plot so that Amnon can, can have his way with Tamar. And we see her, and we'll talk about her in just a moment, but she is a godly woman. She is perhaps the best character in all of this chapter. It is wonderful to see her following the Lord. But she is attacked and she is hurt. And then we see Amnon throw her out in anger. And we see Absalom become furious, but he hides his fury. It stews within him. And then we see David become very angry. But that's it. And then we see two years go by in this text. When the Bible does that, often we are caught and we're surprised because we're reading the text, we're looking through the text, and we forget that in the blink of an eye, years go by. We have to remember that. Two years go by, and then Absalom has his own plot. And his plot is to murder his half-brother, Amnon. And he murders him or has him killed by his servants, and then he flees to the kingdom of his grandfather, his mother's father, the kingdom of Geshur. And now David is left at the end of this chapter needing to be comforted because he's lost two sons, one to death and one to exile. And so this is a chapter full of events that are dark. There's very little light that's here. But we have to remember that God does his greatest work in the blackness of our sin. Well, let's start by looking at this horrible story. And we start with the plot that has been arranged by Amnon and Jonadab. Now, you will remember what has preceded this chapter. There is a clear connection between what has gone on in David's life before and the life of his family. And we expect that to happen, but the text makes it explicit. If you look, the very first word of chapter 3 is a word now. But really, that is what is called a marker of Hebrew narrative. It marks a continuation. You've heard me say it before, but it bears repeating that the chapter and verse divisions and numbers are not from God himself. They are not inspired. 
They are very helpful for memorization, for finding something, but they are not of divine origin. And so chapter 13 flows out of the narrative of chapter 12, and the text actually tells us this. If you were to go back to chapter 12, we see this same word at the beginning. There it's translated and. If you go forward to chapter 14, we see the same word again. It's translated now. That is the narrator telling us that this is all of one piece. It goes together. And so it's important for us to remember that David had everything he needed. He had all that he should have wanted. He had the kingdom. He had peace. He had wealth. He had God's promise. Yet David wasn't satisfied. He was drawn away by his sin. And the result was a devastation, adultery, murder, and God pronouncing judgment on David. So now we are introduced to David's family, following in his footsteps, if you will. We're not left to guess what effect David's sin had on his children. We see it here in Technicolor. And the story starts with Absalom, David's son, because he will become much more important later. He will become a central figure in the next few chapters of the legacy of David and the pain of God's judgment. And then we meet Absalom's sister, Tamar. We are told that she is beautiful. Now, it's clear from the story that Tamar is also a good woman. She is beautiful, yes, but so much more. To use a cliche, Tamar is beautiful on the outside and on the inside. She is kind. She is helpful. She has a servant's heart. We see that from the narrative. She's willing to help. When she is called to help her brother who is ill, she doesn't say, I'm too busy or this is beneath me. Send a maidservant. Send a slave to go do this. No, the princess herself comes to wait upon her brother. Now the interesting thing is, this narrative occurs at a time when we might expect women to be ignored and men to be praised. And you may have even heard people criticize the Bible in that way. That the Bible doesn't think much of women. That it denigrates women. That we need to have a modern sensibility. Well, let me tell you, the Bible praises women. By far and away, the best character in this story is Tamar. Not only does our narrator tell, her, tell us wonderful things about her, she is set in comparison to some men who are horrible. So, we see that she is clearly the best character in this story. Then there's David's oldest son, Amnon. Now like Absalom, we know nothing about Amnon before this chapter. The only other thing we know about Absalom or Amnon, we read in chapter 3 who their mothers were. So all we know about Amnon comes from this chapter. And it's not a pretty picture. Amnon is at the center of this horrible story. We're told in verse 2 that he was tormented and made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, because he loved her. He loved her in verse 1, and that love was so great that he was tormented and made himself ill. Now, this sounds like the beginning of a love story, but immediately we are struck and something is very wrong. Because 
He loved his sister. Now, true, she is a half-sister, but you're not supposed to have that kind of love for your sister. Now, don't get me wrong, young people, you are to love your sister and your siblings. You are not to punch them, to hit them, pull their hair. You are not to do that. You are to love them. But that's a sibling love. We know immediately that something is off here, that something is very wrong. And we see this because we're told that it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her in verse 2. Now, there's two things about this phrase that are very troubling. First, we see that it seemed impossible to Amnon to satisfy himself. And this makes sense because she is, after all, a princess and she is unmarried, so she is likely protected by the king and his, his court and his army. She doesn't go off and out in public. He, um, Amnon doesn't have opportunities to, to chat with her or, or to be around her, so it's impossible. But the second thing that should really draw your attention is he says it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. If that doesn't sound wrong to you, repeat it. Read it again. Because if you love someone, what you say is, I want to do something for you. Because after all, that's what love is. Love is self-sacrificial. Love is putting another above yourself. But here we're immediately struck that Tamar is an object for Amnon. He wants to do something to her. We're not told explicitly yet, but the story will make that clear. So this is troubling. Amnon is obsessed with Tamar. And in this, don't we see an echo of David and Bathsheba? David saw Bathsheba, but that wasn't enough. He was obsessed, and so he had to ask who she was. And then he found out who she was, but that wasn't enough. He had to call and get her and bring her to him, and that wasn't enough. He had to have her, and that wasn't enough. Then he had to kill her husband so that he might have her as his wife. It's a similar kind of obsession we have here. Well, lucky, so to speak, for Amnon, his cousin Jonadab is available to help him. And Jonadab is described here in our text as being a very crafty man in verse 3. Now the word here is the word for wise. It's translated wise or skillful in other places in the Bible. But we have to understand that translating a word requires context. So if I were to say to you, he is a wise man, or he's a wise guy, you know I mean two different things by that. That's what we see here. And Jonadab is not wise in the way that he should be. He has no integrity. He has no compassion. He's crafty. And so he comes up with a plan to get Tamar to Amnon's room. It's a plan of lying, deceit, and expected violence. Do not kid yourself. Jonadab knows what is likely to happen if his plan succeeds. He's planning for it. There is wickedness built into the plan. So if we look at Amnon and think that he is a dangerous and foul person, then we must think all the more that Jonadab is a wicked man. Now, Amnon has his hormones running crazy. But Jonadab is a crafty man without any integrity. 
He is a fixer. He gets things done. Even when the things to be done are horrible. So it's important for us to see initially there that skill and ability are not the most important things in a person. Integrity and godliness are. And yet today, we value ability over wisdom, even in the church. But all throughout our society, we see this. We see it here in our town, where a man's ability to throw a tight spiral is more important than the way he treats women. And teams are clamoring to get their hands on this football player so that they can make him a multi-multi-million dollar part of their team. Do you see the insanity of that? But it's so commonplace now that we look past it. Because I could give you other examples from entertainment, from politics, from business. You see this all the time. Can the guy get the job done? Does this woman have the skill we need? Well, then let's not worry about their character. When you choose friends, keep this principle in mind. Look for people of integrity and honesty more than skill or ability. Well, the planning of this plot is bad enough. Let's be clear. There is sin involved even in the planning of it. Before the plan is executed at all, Amnon and Jonadab have sinned. We remember we said this before with David looking upon Bathsheba to be tempted, to give in to that temptation, to have that arise from your heart is sin. So they're already at the place of needing to repent. But the execution of this plan is far worse. In that way, it's very similar to David in chapter 11. For a momentary satisfaction, far-reaching destruction will result. Deception is at the heart of this plan. You and I know that nothing good can come of it. So Amnon fakes an illness, and then he draws David into the mess. He goes to his father and he says, Oh, I'm not well. Can you make my sister come to me? And so David, the father, is actually the one who puts Tamar in harm's way. Now, why does David not stop and think? Why Tamar? Why not send the best nurse in all of the kingdom? Why not send the best chef in all of the kingdom? Why send the beautiful sister? I think perhaps because of David's incident with Bathsheba, he does not want to think about what could happen. Have you had that experience where you have a sin from your past and that causes you to be blind to something similar in the present because you don't want to think about it because you're ashamed of what you've done even though it's in the past, even though you're forgiven. You cannot think or talk about anything similar. You ignore it. You ignore the signals. That's what David's doing here. Actually, because of what David did, he should be on high alert. If anyone knows what men are thinking, David does. Well, Tamar comes to Amnon and he seizes her. She comes to feed him and he sets everything up. He sends out all the servants and he says, bring me the food. Oh no, I'm so ill and tired. You need to feed me the food yourself. And as she comes to hand him the cakes, he grabs her wrists. She can't get away. 
That should disturb you. That should shock you. The narrator wants us to be shocked and disturbed at how horrific this is. He wants us to sympathize with Tamar, to, to feel her fear, to fear how, feel how she's trapped, how she shouldn't be. What can she do? How can she get out? And Tamar pleads with Amnon to let her go. She uses everything at her disposal because he says that she will be harming her. She will, he will be ruining her life. And this is not right. And we know this from God's word, from the Pentateuch, from God's law. This was an unholy union. They, they could not be together because they're related. They're half brother and half sister. But some people say, well, no, 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 that can't be the case, pastor. Because look, she says, why don't you ask dad if he'll let you marry me? Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever been in a tight spot? Would you say anything you could to get out of the tight spot? Especially when you're afraid? I don't know about you as a pastor. I will give you permission to lie to an assaulter or a robber. Tell them you don't have something. Tell them you got to go to your car. Tell them you got to make a phone call. You don't owe them honesty. And that's, I think, what Tamar is doing here. She's not intending to marry this man, but she's trying to cool him down. She's trying to get a pause so she can get out of there. And she should actually be commended for that. So let's be clear about that. And this is where we see the truth of the situation. You see, Amnon is claiming this great love for her, but it's not true. He's actually just like his father. He sees and he takes. He wants. So he gets. He doesn't care about her or the consequences. Now, often we can also dress up our sinful desires with better language. That's what Amnon is doing here. He doesn't want to use words like lust or desire. He uses a much flowerier, acceptable word like love. Are you tempted to do that when you sin? To dress it up in better language? You see, we would do well to examine our hearts and our motives because when we do that, we will be kept from sin. Well, Tamar tells Amnon that this is outrageous and that he will be an outrageous fool if he does this. And this is interesting. This is actually only one root word in the Hebrew. It's the word for fool. And for effect, our translation says it's outrageous fool. And it's an outrageously foolish thing to do. And what we need to see that, why our translation does that, is when you and I typically think about a fool, we think about someone who is stupid, who's an idiot, who does things that lack common sense. They're foolish. But that's not what this word means in the Bible. The same word is used in Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. You see, the word fool here is a moral category. Evil. If you want to know what a fool looks like, you can go to Isaiah chapter 32, verse 6. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity. To practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, to deprive the thirsty of drink. The fool is a wicked man who denies others what they need, who produces 
error and mockery of who God is and who is busy with sin and wickedness. That's who the fool is. And Tamar is telling Amnon, you're about to cross a line that you can't uncross. When you do this, there's no going back. Now, fear of consequences of sin is a means that God uses to keep us from sin. Don't think of the fear of the consequences of sin as being bad. It's God helping us. Now, the difficulty is that our culture wants you to forget about consequences. Our culture is constantly telling you, be your own person. Be number one. Don't worry about what others think. You got to be happy yourself. Do whatever makes you feel good. And we can be drawn into that if we're not careful because that is a lie from the pit of hell. And if you don't think so, reread this story because that's exactly what is happening here. Amnon does not fear consequences of sin. He does what he wants. He's looking out for number one. Well, the second thing that we see from this horrible story is the horrible reaction of a number of people. And there are two reactions that we see. The first is that there is no justice. And the second is that there is no mercy. The first reaction comes from Amnon himself. Because almost as soon as the wickedness is over, Amnon is finished with Tamar forever. This is the guy who at the beginning of our story could have gone on forever and ever about how he loved Tamar. He would go on and on and on and talk your ear off. And now, he can't even stand to see her. The language of hatred is very vivid here in verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. So the man who would go on and on about his love now hates her more than he loved her. Now why is that? Well, the obvious answer is because there was no love at the outset. Amnon was only thinking about himself. And now that Tamar has rejected him and he's had to take her by force, he feels shame and he wants nothing to do with her. And his reaction is almost as violent as his previous actions were. Amnon said to her, get up, go. Three words in the English, two words in Hebrew. There's no discussion here. Up, out. Get her out of my sight. And Tamar pleads with him. She says, this is going to be even worse. Don't do this great evil. We need to find a way to deal with this situation. But I want you to see how self-centered Amnon is. She is the one who is hurt. And he has her shoved out the door by his servants. And worse than that, the door locked behind her. So she can't get back in. And verse 17 is very clear. He says, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. And now again here, the translation is, is good, but it lacks a little bit in coloring. Because in order for us to understand it, it supplies a word. There is one word that is not in that sentence in the Hebrew. It's the word woman. What Amnon actually says is, put this out of my presence and bolt the door. 
That's what he says. He wants to treat her like yesterday's garbage. She's not even a person to her. She's this. She's something in the way. She's stinking up the room. She makes me unhappy. Get her out of here. There is no justice at all in what Amnon is doing. No care in response to his actions. Well, then we see the reaction of David, her father, and the king. Now, unlike David's affair with Bathsheba, this action was not hidden in the least. It presumably was known throughout the palace and throughout the city. Tamar, as she leaves, tears her robe. She's crying. She's screaming, the text says. She puts ashes on her head. Everyone knows this. There is no hushing this up. She goes to Absalom's house forever. And she's shamed and hurt. Now, this aspect is something that we see around us often. It used to be that people tried to hide their sin, like David did. Have you noticed that that's not what people do any longer? That instead they parade it around for everyone to see. They mock God and His Word. You need to be especially careful not to follow the world in this. And so because of this, David hears about it. But what does he think? Now, every dad here in the room is probably thinking nearly the same thing. Get me my shotgun. Right? David should defend the honor of his daughter. He should help her. But there is this odd and cut-off statement in verse 21. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Period. Now, there is a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint that you may be familiar with that adds some additional language here. That it adds, but he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him since he was his firstborn. Kind of a commentary on this. I don't think that that manuscript tradition is likely the true text. I think we have before us the true text because I think we are meant to see how shocking the period is. It's like, well, where's the rest? Well, what did David do? Did he put on the sword of Goliath? Did he call the elders? Well, what's David doing here? It's like we're left hanging. You see, David, we're told, is very angry. Okay, but what now? And the answer is nothing. David does nothing. Amnon is still the crown prince. He's still at the court. And this is not a brief thing. This is not a two-week thing or a two-month thing. Look at verse 23. This happens for two years. David ignores it and doesn't do anything. Can you imagine how Tamar felt at this time? Not only was she hurt and shamed by Amnon, but her own father, the king, did nothing about it. Now this should remind you that as Christians, we do have an obligation to do justice. Now I'm not talking about passing fads of social justice that the latest Twitter mob comes up with. No. What you need to stand for is the truth. And what God says is just in His Word. Sin hurts people. Real people. And we need to stand with the victims of sin. Now, why did David fail so badly? 
Well, it's likely that because of the legacy of his own sin, he felt he had no moral authority. I mean, how do you go up to Amnon to criticize him? The response will be, well, at least I didn't kill anybody, Dad. I stopped well short of where you were. Now, we also know that David indulged his sons. So even if that Septuagint translation is not correct, we can look at 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6, where we are explicitly told that David indulged his sons, that he did not correct his sons. And we are about to see the fruit of this. It's not just Amnon, it's Absalom. And then it's Adonijah. We're shown over and over again that David is overly indulgent. But the truth is that this story is the fulfilling of God's threat to David in chapter 12. God brings it about through David's own character flaws. Well, the next reaction that we see is that there's no mercy. This third reaction comes from Absalom. His first response to Tamar appears to be one of compassion. He comes to her. He sees she's distressed. It's interesting. He says, has, your, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? In verse 20. And then he says something that should at least leave you puzzled, if not infuriated. Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. What? Is he her champion? What's going on here? Don't worry about it too much? Keep quiet about it? Now, I think we're going to see why he's saying this. It doesn't have anything at all to do with her. It's because the wheels are already turning in his mind about how he's going to get vengeance. And he doesn't want her to mess that up. Be quiet. Go to my house. Don't raise any suspicions, even if that's really painful for you. Now, he does at least take Tamar in and provide for her. He gives her a place where she's not going to be hurt by whispers and by stares. But verse 22 shows us his true heart. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. He is filled with hate for Amnon. Now this is a chilling description here in the Bible. He doesn't let it show. And this goes on, again, for two years. Can you imagine that? He holds it in. He keeps his face blank, as it were. He's got a great poker face, a two-year poker face. Now, the question is, does David really believe that Absalom is okay with this situation? The text doesn't tell us that. But it seems as if David is afraid to even bring it up to Absalom. He's embarrassed by his own sin and by his failure to do what he should have done as the king. And so Absalom doesn't fly into a rage like David does. His hatred was cold, calculating, and patient. He plots and he murders Amnon. The plot is well thought out and it is deceptive. This may even be a part of the revenge on Amnon for plotting against his sister. Absalom is trying to hide his intent. He goes and asks David if he would come to the sheep shearing party. You have those a couple of times a year, right? A sheep shearing party. And so he invites David and David says, oh, no, no, no. I, this would be a burden to you. And you have to understand, you can't just invite David to the party. If you get David, you get everyone at the court. And you get all their wives. 
and you get the soldiers, and you get all kinds of folks. And David is saying, you don't need a big entourage. I don't want to make this a burden on you. But Absalom's calculating here. Because his next question is, well, at least send all of your sons. Send my, all of my brothers. Send the whole court. And the odd thing is he specifically requests Amnon. Now, you would think David would find that odd, that that would make him suspicious. Why would he only ask specifically about Amnon? But if Amnon's actions imitated David with Bathsheba, now here, Absalom's actions are clearly a replay of David and Uriah. There is a plot here to kill. Now, what could Absalom have done? You remember we said David had other options before him rather than murdering Uriah. Well, Absalom could have insisted on real justice. He could have said to his father, Be the king, Dad. This is your job. Or he could have gone to the elders and he could have said, We need to charge Amnon with this horrible crime. He could have seen that he was cast out of the palace, that he was not made the crown prince. This would have been a righteous vindication of Tamar. Or, on the other hand, he could have gone to Amnon and asked him to repent, to make restitution, to acknowledge his guilt. Why doesn't he do this? Perhaps it's because Absalom saw that this was a way to get to the throne. Because when Amnon is out of the way, Absalom's now the heir to the throne. But also, perhaps, Absalom didn't even see the need to do the right thing. After all, Dad didn't do the right thing. Why should I have to do the right thing? He watched his father. Our sins come back to haunt us in many ways. But I think especially in our children. But there is another way. Instead, we could be a model of repentance and forgiveness for our children. We can repent to them. We can allow them to see us repenting and receiving forgiveness and giving forgiveness. We could set them on the road to godliness through this. Not David. Not Absalom. Well, the last thing that we have here briefly are some lessons that we can take away from this story. We have a lesson that we learn about our sin and a lesson that we learn about our God. So as much as we cringe to see this story, God has given us this story for our instruction. Now, that's not just your pastor's assessment. The Apostle Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 10. What was written beforehand is there for our instruction. And so we saw before that sin is more dangerous and deadly than we think. David thought he could sin and no one would know and that there would be no consequences. He essentially forgot about God and His holiness. But now we see that our sin can set a pattern for those who are around us. David's sin is repeated in a surprisingly similar way by his sons. There is the illicit looking for a woman. There is the taking. There is the public shame and then a murder. But we also see here that the absolutely worst thing to do with our sin is to hide it and to run from God. Do you see that in each of these cases, 
That just makes everything worse. What would have happened if Jonadab would have been truly wise and would have confronted Amnon? If he would have said, Guy, cut this out. This is wrong. You shouldn't think this way. You need to repent of this. You need to find yourself a good wife. You need to stop doing this. What would have happened if Amnon would have heard the pleas of his sister? If he would have said, you know what, you're right. I'm out of my mind here. I'm crazy, but I'm going to stop here before the damage is done. This is embarrassing, and this will be difficult. But you know what? We haven't crossed that line yet. What would have happened if Absalom would have repented of his murderous rage that seethed within him? You see, what this shows us is the only thing that you can do with your sin is to take it to the cross. No matter what you have done, you can find forgiveness with Jesus. Our confession of faith says in chapter 15 that there is no sin so great that it can bring about damnation upon those who truly repent. Do you hear that? You could say, Pastor, you don't know my sins. And I may not. But I can tell you, if you come up with or think of the worst thing you could possibly ever imagine, there is no sin so great, but that repentance cannot be found. Think what we see in the Bible. Think of those who crucified our Lord. Think of Paul who butchered members of the church. They found forgiveness at the foot of the cross. Jesus is ready to take you now. He will show you His grace. He will forgive you. Now that does not mean that there will be no consequences. Amnon would have still had to answer for the consequences of his sin. But there is a solution to sin. There is forgiveness with Jesus. Finally, we also learn something about God. Now this chapter seems to be godless. If you look it over, you'll find something that's very interesting. That God is absent in this chapter. He doesn't appear. Do you see that? It doesn't say, and God said this. Or God did that. Or God saw that. No. There's not one mention of God here. Where is God when all of this is happening? Has he abandoned David and his family? Has he abandoned his people Israel? No, look closer here. He is doing exactly what he said he would in chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. God is in sovereign control through human means and events. And that means that even though, humanly speaking, everything in this story is a mess, God is still on the throne. Now that lesson goes beyond sin and repentance. In a time in which we live, when the world seems completely out of control, you don't need to be afraid. Because no matter what happens to our country, our world, or the American church, God still reigns. Does that give you comfort? Confidence? Hope? It should. Because life is hard, and sin is horrible, but God is still on the throne. Now this is a chapter that many of you may have wished was not even in the Bible. My former 
professor and friend Derek Thomas has a sermon on this text entitled, Why is this chapter in the Bible? It may be embarrassing to you. Or it may bring up memories of hurts that you have suffered. It may be that you are angry about injustice here. But this story is here in the Bible for a reason. It's because we need a warning. We need to be constantly reminded of how horrible sin is. Because that is one way that we are kept from sin. But more importantly, it reminds us of the great price that our Savior had to pay. Your salvation was not free. It is free to you. But it was purchased at great cost. Jesus paid that price if you have put your faith in Him. Have you done that? It's not too late. No matter what burden of sin you have, you can lay it at the feet of Jesus. Come to Him now. Find peace. Find hope. Let's pray.